You remember that year that Tim Tebow won the Heisman Trophy and played for the national championship against the Oklahoma Sooners? You might not be a football fan, and I can appreciate that, I guess. <laughs> I'm a big fan, so I remember that. I was on the other side of the world with Todd and Brenda Kent when this game was going on in Cutter. But um, in that game, Tim Tebow, who was the Heisman Trophy winner, uh, wrote on his eye black the scripture reference John 3.16. And many people saw that that evening. In fact, Google reported that John 3.16 was searched on their search site in the United States 94 million times that evening, which is pretty incredible, isn't it? Considering there's 330 million people in the United States, 94 million searched that evening for John 3.16. And a few days later, when Tim Tebow was told about that, he responded by saying, honestly, my first thought was, how do 94 million people not know John 3.16? Which, if you're a Christian and have followed Jesus for some time, this is one of those verses that you know, and that you know by heart. But it's also a sober reminder that many people right here in our land do not know this precious truth. And we're going to dig into that verse today. And so whether you are new to Christianity and have not experienced the, the good news that is contained in John 3.16, or whether you're a seasoned follower of Jesus and you've cut your teeth on this verse from your earliest of days, I want to invite you to join me as we listen in on a conversation that Jesus has with one of the religious leaders of the day, one of the, the spiritual leaders of Israel who didn't know the basic facts about God and his redemption. But let me pause and pray for us as we get ready to, to dive into this text. Lord, we thank you for this Advent season in which we get to reflect more deeply on the meaning of the coming of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as together, my friends and I, look at this verse, that you would minister deeply to our souls this day. For some of us, as I just mentioned, this verse is very familiar. We can, we can recite it without even thinking about it. For others of us, this is, this is new territory. So wherever we are, Lord, help us to see this day the truths that are contained in this verse with fresh eyes and use it, Lord, to, to deepen our appreciation of, of who you are, to be changed by your grace, and to be swept up in the grand story that you're telling, Jesus and his love. In his name we pray, amen. So John chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 1 and get the context of this wonderful verse that Jesus speaks. We're told by the gospel writer, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here we're having this conversation with this learned Israel leader, spiritual leader of Israel. They, they begin talking about issues of the kingdom of God and eternal life. And we see that Nicodemus actually has no understanding of what this truth contains. And so Jesus brings this up and brings it to the forefront. And this is the context in which he says that beloved verse that we, we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here are verses that we've recited every Sunday of Advent at the confession of our sins. And these are words that, that many of us are first captured with when we hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. For some people, these are the very first words of Scripture they commit to memory. For many people, these words contain, in summary, what the Scriptures teach about the salvation that God offers to people like you and me. Fanny O'Connor was a Southern Gothic writer, and you read her work, and oftentimes it ends with something suddenly, violently happening, and you're left asking the question, what just happened? And one time she was asked, could you summarize what you're trying to say in a nutshell? And she said, if I could do that, I wouldn't have had to write the whole story. <laughs> Which I love that response, because in many ways, John 3.16 is like that. The scriptures contain for us this wonderful story of God's redemption of mankind. It begins with creation and God speaking creation into existence and establishing humanity to be kings and queens with him to rule this world. But as you know the story, that first king and queen turned their back upon God and in their wake all his other descendants followed. But Jesus came and suffered and died for us. And he did that so that we could receive life in his kingdom, eternal life. And so we can summarize that story of scripture in a nutshell by saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is such a wonderful verse. I love what Augustine said when he said, this teaching of Jesus is deep enough for a whale to swim in and shallow enough for a child to wade in. You can go so deep in just reflecting on this verse, and we're going to do that together this morning. So this verse starts out by saying, for God so loved the world. I say this verse. These verses came later on. This teaching of Jesus starts out by saying, for God so loved. And for anyone who's familiar with the teachings of Jesus, this shouldn't come to a shock for us. He's told us about his Father and his great big heart for people like you and me. To say that God is love is to state something very, very basic, very essential to God. In fact, the Apostle John said that in his first letter that he wrote. God is love. When you hear those words, what comes to your mind? I'm reminded of what the old theologian said. God is an infinite and incomprehensible fountain of love. The very being of God wells up and overflows with love. It's 
essential to him. You cannot have God and take love apart and separate them. They go together. I love the poem by F.H. Lehman when he said, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies with parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. To say that God loves is to say God does what comes most naturally to him. He overflows with love. We're also told that God so loved the world. That's a very interesting phrase. God so loved the world. For, For you and I who've been around Christianity, this is no big surprise for us. But it's also one of the big challenges of communicating exactly what Jesus says. I love the way D.A. Carson put it in his book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, which is a, a very interesting title. He says that people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that God, that this God, however he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. But that is what makes the, Christ, the task of the Christian witness so daunting. See, we live in a culture right now that lives off the residue of a Christianity that has told people that God loves and that he loves this world. And you couple that with where we are today when people say, hear this and they go, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? I'm a very lovable person. To say that God so loved the world is to describe the object of God's love. That is a world, or we might say a kingdom that is in rebellion against him. Remember the story of Scripture. God created this world, and he filled it with image bearers that were meant to to rule along with him, to spread his kingdom over the face of this earth. And they rebelled. As the Apostle Paul said, Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Someone reads that and they go, isn't that kind of bleak? Paul would say, yeah. If you consider where we were created to be, that is with God and ruling with God, loving one another, and you look at this world, you can see how far off track we've gotten. In fact, Isaiah the prophet put it like this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That is kind of the shocking news that Christianity presents. Before it it cases the good news of Jesus Christ or highlights or showcases it, it paints this black backdrop by which the jewel of the gospel can shine. And so we shouldn't be surprised when it says, for God so loved. But we are surprised when it says, for God so loved the world. And we're further surprised when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When we think about Christmas and all that it means, oftentimes you hear in our culture these sentimental messages that that capture a feel-good feeling, and someone will say, that's what Christmas is all about. Well, if you take Jesus out of Christmas, you have no Christmas. You don't have anything for Christmas to be about. And so God so loved this world that he gave his only son. And as we've said, oftentimes, Jesus was born to die. You can't take the beginning of his life apart from the end of his life. 
In one sense, we're all born to die. We live under the sentence of death, a spiritual death. But Jesus came with a mission to bear the sins of people like you and me. Going back to Isaiah the prophet, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The scripture teaches that Jesus stood in the place of people like you and me, stood condemned, and he took upon us, upon him, the punishment that was due us. And someone says, stop. How is this not divine child abuse? Have you had this objection? Maybe you've heard this objection. That it sounds like Jesus is just beating up on his son. And how is that loving? I mean, would it be loving for you to abuse a child? And tell me, I want you to know how much I love you. Just watch what I do to my son. That would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? How would you respond if someone brought up this objection? Sounds like this is just a case of divine child abuse. Well, Tim Keller, as he often does, gives us help in seeing this. He said, it is crucial at this point to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus is God. God did not then inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross absorbed the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself. Therefore, the God of the Bible is not like some primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy evil without destroying us. Do you see that? After all, Jesus would say, as it's recorded for us later in the Gospel of John, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. When you understand that in this mystery of the Trinity, that Jesus God's Son becomes human, takes on flesh. We understand that God himself takes the punishment that was due to people like you and me. And so it's not divine child abuse. It's God himself taking the abuse of the world upon himself. The way the Apostle Peter would put it, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. So when we hear those words, those beautiful words that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, understand that Jesus has come to live and to die for us and for our salvation, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. That verse, that saying of Jesus, I should say, goes on to say that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you get that? <laughs> it, it, it's almost hard to hear it because it's so familiar, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That's amazing news. That's incredible news. But some people object to it. Some people say, see, this is why I can't buy into Christianity. Y'all are too exclusive. Y'all think y'all are the only ones who are going to make it to heaven. 
Jesus is the one who said these words. Whoever believes in me might not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus also said things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says there's not a hundred ways to God. Everyone's not climbing up the same mountain on a quest to seek God. Everyone has turned their own way. No one seeks God. But if anyone comes to God, it is only through me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. As you look at these words, what do you think about them? Is Jesus crazy? Is he lying? Or is he telling the truth? I remember when I first came to grips with this. <laughs> if Jesus is lying, no one should follow him or trust him with anything. But if you read the Gospels, he doesn't strike you as a liar. And if he's crazy, well, why should we follow him? But not many people are willing to go to the mat saying that Jesus was a crazy man. But maybe he's telling the truth. Let's entertain the question for a moment. If Jesus is wrong, what is the alternative? If he's wrong in saying that no one comes to the Father except through me, if he's wrong in saying whoever believes in, in him has eternal life, what are the alternatives? Well, one alternative is to say, I believe everyone will make it to heaven. I remember in Calgary going to one of the local malls with a friend of mine. We were doing surveys of people and their beliefs, and I had a conversation with a professor at the University of Calgary. And we got in this conversation, and, and he told me this very thing, I believe everybody will make it to heaven. And so I asked him the question, well, what about someone like Hitler? Will he make it to heaven? He says, I believe that God is very understanding. We'll understand why Hitler did what he did, and he will welcome him to heaven. And so I didn't know what to do with that exactly. I can't imagine an unrepentant Hitler being in heaven with a bunch of repentant people. So I asked him, well, what about someone who doesn't want to go to heaven? Will God force them to come in? And he at last conceded, I guess that wouldn't be very loving of God to do. And so we continued in our conversation, and I brought up this truth that Jesus said about being the way to heaven. Well, another option is to say, I believe all good people will make it to heaven no matter what they believe. What do you think about that? This is certainly what Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City and former presidential candidate, once believed. There's an article that said, I have earned my place into heaven. <laughs> with quotation marks, with Michael Bloomberg's name in front of it. So I had to click on it and see what he had to say. And the subtitle of it, this article says, the former New York City mayor is, con is uh, confident that his... I can't read this, it's too small. My, it's confident that his latest $50 million gun control initiative has secured a happy afterlife. So I clicked on this article, and this is what he said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven... I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. You, you don't have to be a Christian to, 
to, uh, to assess the arrogance dripping from a statement like this, can he? To say it's not even close, that he has earned his place in giving money away to causes he believes in. Someone says, but what about people like me? I've done some really bad things that I'm ashamed of. I know I'm not good enough to earn my place in heaven. Tim Keller, once again, is helpful. He says, it sounds very open-minded to say, I believe that any good person can find God, not just Christians. But what is the premise? That the good can find God and the bad do not. That's very exclusive. Very. If you don't have to believe in Jesus to find God, then good works are enough. And if good works are enough, then God accepts people through performance. Everyone knows that somewhere there is a cutoff point for moral performance or goodness of heart, etc. But that is quite exclusive. You see, the good news that Jesus is offering is good news for the worst of us. For those of us who don't have $50 million to contribute to a cause and hope that we can buy off God so we don't have to stop for an interview on the way into heaven. Some of us, we're, we're acutely aware of the harm that we've done to others. And we know that there's no amount of good works that can offset that. You see, all great religions of the world, many philosophies of man, embrace moralism, with the only exception being Jesus. Jesus says you cannot earn your way into the kingdom. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There must be an act of grace that changes your heart, that opens your heart to believe the words of Jesus. After all those words, whoever believes are quite expansive, aren't they? (laughs) They're for whoever believes. You see, the good news is just that. It's good news. It's breaking news that whosoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. So if you're raised in a Christian home, great. That good news is for you. If you were raised in a Muslim home, great. That good news is for you. If you were raised in an atheist home, great. That good news is for you. Whosoever believes in Jesus, doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter what you believe, when that good news of Christ comes to you, you're called to welcome it into your life. Whosoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. So the question is raised, does that whoever include me? My friends, the answer to that is yes. That's the invitation to believe and to come to Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's why I love that quote by the, um, what's the right word? Mark Twain, I was trying to think of a colorful adjective to use and nothing's coming to my mind. He said, heaven goes by favor or by grace. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. (laughs) Dogs are more faithful than we are as humans, right? And so the gospel, according to Michael Bloomberg, is if you're good enough, you're rich enough, you can buy your way in. Mark Twain and Jesus would both say, no, that's not the case. That's why we sang that song earlier. Come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, you are not alone. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you.
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus gives a second reason. Four, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why must Jesus be lifted up? Why must he come into this world? Why must he be proclaimed? Because he did not come to condemn, but to save. And so, just a couple points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let's unwrap the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Scriptures teach us very clearly, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is God's Christmas present to the world. Jesus. You see, Mr. Bloomberg, what we earn is not a place in heaven, but spiritual death. But (laughs) there's good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine God wanting to give you a gift and you saying, I'm not really interested? How insane would that be? God's gift to you and God's gift to me is the Lord Jesus Christ. We unwrap him by putting our trust in him and our faith in him. The whosoever believes in him must be activated in our hearts. Listen how John the Apostle put it. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to make atonement for our sins. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So my friends, when you think of Jesus this Christmas, think of him wrapped as a big present with a big bow on him that is God's gift to you. Don't leave it unwrapped. Trust in him. Believe in him. Have him as your savior. Have him as your redeemer. Have him as the one who makes atonement for your sins. So let's unwrap that beautiful gift. And then let's, let's bask in the beams of God's love. This is the second point of application. Let's bask in the beams of God's love. Again, the Apostle John says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. It's beautiful and wonderful that, that God gives to us the gift of Jesus, isn't it? But Jesus comes with all these other gifts as well. It's not just one gift, but many others. Jesus, we unwrap and we find that we are loved by God. We find that we receive eternal life. But there's another present that comes with it. The adoption as children of God. See, friends, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, we should be called the children of God. And so we are. I loved what Brendan Manning said one time. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is illusion. Friends, we live in a time when everyone, it seems this is in vogue, for everyone to declare an identity. People to say, this is who I really am. For the Christian, you don't have to define yourself. You're already defined as one who is radically loved by God. And so my friends, enjoy that. Listen how the Apostle Paul puts it, writing to the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. I pray that you, being rooted 
and grounded in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, catch this, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you know a love that surpasses knowledge? Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? I think that's Paul's way of saying you can't get your mind wrapped around it. You can't, you can't define it to a T. You can't, like, a, like a, a math problem or a chemistry problem for my chemistry friends, just dissect it and get to the, the, the bottom of it. it. It just, it blows your mind. But he wants you to know this love that's unknowable, which I think is just another way of him saying you've got to experience it. At the end of the day, you can write about it. You can seek to, to drain the oceans dry with ink, writing about the love of God on parchments. You can, you can try to define it the best you can. But at the end of the day, you've just got to experience it. You've got to bask in its beams. I love the way Kyle Adelman put it. The one who knows me best loves me most. My friends, that's God's gift to you this Christmas season. God created us to know and experience his infinite and incomprehensible love. So my friends, are you experiencing that? My prayer for you, for me, for Mercy Hill Church, is that we wouldn't coast in this. That we wouldn't go, oh yeah, yeah, I got that. God loves us. <laughs> but in a sense that this would recapture us again and again so that we are blown away at the thought that God loves, the one who knows me the best, my darkest parts, loves me the most. That's just mind-blowing. And so, that's what we celebrate this Christmas. I'm going to leave you with a quote by you 2 I'm a fanboy. He was thinking on this one time, and he, he, he gave this testimony. This is a rock star, by the way. He said, the idea that God, if there is a force of logic and love in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw, poverty, in a child. I thought, wow, just the poetry, unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable there it was. I was sitting there, and it's not that it hadn't struck me before, but tears came streaming down my face, and I saw the genius of this love. Mercy Hill Church, this Christmas, may you know and experience the genius of this love.